through Acts 18, at least part of it, and then it'll probably be a two-part uh, study on Acts 18. So, good to see you tonight. Uh, those watching on the internet, great to have you with us. And uh, for those on the internet, uh, 9 o'clock a.m. every Sunday morning, right here at Union Grove Baptist Church, right in the heart of Racine County, we'd love to have you here and uh, join with us. Uh, we've uh, also have a Sunday school hour and adult Bible fellowship time, which starts at 1045 on Sunday morning. Any Sunday that does not have a holiday on it, like Mother's Day, Father's Day, Memorial Day, all those, we do not have a Sunday night, but every other week we uh, do have a Sunday night service. So I'd love to have you come to that. And then Wednesday night, uh, every week, 6.30 p.m., and uh, we have youth group for all ages, uh, as well as our teens. So for those, again, on the Internet, uh, we invite you to come. Everyone's always welcome. All right, good to see you folks tonight, and uh, trust uh, you're set and ready to do Prophecy Focus Global Update and a little study and acts for those just coming in, and we'll get started. So let's pray and ask the Lord to meet with us. Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for uh, the Summer Quest youth group that's taking place as we speak. Pray that you bless the young people. And Lord, as uh, the workers uh, teach the Word of God to them, as well as have some good activities, pray you keep them safe and that they learn and uh, same for the teen group. And Father, as always, we ask if anyone's in the building tonight that's never placed their faith and trust in Christ, that they might find uh, him as their personal Savior this evening before they leave this premise. For the rest that do know Christ, might uh, you help us to grow in our walk with you as we study to show ourselves approved unto God, work men and work women that need not be ashamed, rightly handling, rightly dividing the word of truth. So we commit tonight to you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so, uh, and I see a couple folks that I'm not familiar with. I'll greet you afterwards. Uh, that's if you don't walk out on me, which I hope you don't. But uh, good to see you folks. And uh, we're, for those that just came in, again, if you're not familiar with the first 30 minutes, we do what's called our Prophecy Focus Global Update. We're looking at things that, from a prophetic nexus, things that are happening in current events that are setting the stage, if you will, for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. So we go to various news sources, uh, open source things, see what's happening. We'll look at three stories tonight. And the big issue that we've been, we're, we're centering in on, and uh, perilous times are talked about in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. And know at the, the last days, the last days of the church age time, which is what we live in now, there will be perilous, difficult times. And uh, if you're not aware that we're in perilous, difficult times, you haven't looked at the news in at least one hour. So <laughs> uh, it, it's tough out there. A lot of things that are taking place that are setting the stage, if you will, for the three things at the top, uh, according to Revelation 13, the one world economy, the one world religion, and the one world government. We'll take a look at a little bit of that tonight as we get going. All right, first story tonight. Interesting, again, Russia, China, seal economic packs amid Western criticism. Now, again, it's like, why are we looking at this? So if you're not familiar with uh, the prophetic scriptures, which uh, the Bible's filled with them, but there are certain things that uh, are taking place that are setting the stage, if you will, for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. So when we're looking at, and uh, we'll do a little quiz here, see how many can uh, 
are catching on to some of these things. If we're talking about Russia in Bible prophecy, specifically when they're going to lead a coalition in the future that goes against Israel, who knows where we would find that uh, those passages? One specific passage. Ezekiel 30, Ezekiel 38, correct, and 39. So Ezekiel 38 talks about the coalition of nations that will rise up against Israel. That's still future. It hasn't happened yet. So when you look at uh, uh, what's taking place and you look at all the surrounding nations of Israel, Russia, Magog in uh, your King James Version or your New King James and other versions, the word Magog is referring to Russia. Russia is going to be the center force that's going to get uh, the nations that surround Israel fired up and eventually attack Israel. Well, isn't it funny how uh, Russia is a major player right now uh, with the Ukraine war and other things? And regardless of who you think's winning the war or what's going to happen with that, Russia's still a major player and will definitely be a major player according to Ezekiel 38. All right, when we're looking at China, why do we care about China? Give me a passage, one major passage that talks about China in the prophetic scripture as being a major player. Where do we find it? All right, that's, uh, I can't, my mic just had gone out because I didn't hear anybody, but uh, <laughs> I, I am part deaf. Okay, Revelation chapter 16. Revelation 16 talks about the, the king of the east that will rise up. All right, so these are uh, uh, two of the main passages, prophetically speaking, Ezekiel 38 and 39, the Gog-Magog war, which is when Israel will be attacked uh, by the surrounding nations. Now, let, let's just play with this for a couple of seconds to, to get us all in tune with this. Why are all the surrounding nations, what's the common denominator with those nations that surround Israel? Islam, all right? Now, again, Ezekiel 38 was written about eight, 900 years before Christ. And did Islam exist at that time? No. no. Uh, as much as uh, the Islamic folks, our Muslim friends, would like us to believe that, uh, that uh, Allah in, uh, or Muhammad has always been impactful, that's not true. In fact, we're not looking at 800 B.C., but 600 A.D., when Muhammad comes on the scene. Now again, uh, the issue being when Ezekiel 38 and 39 is listing all the nations that surround Israel, and of course the names are different in, uh, than what modern day terms are, but it's not too hard to figure out. Meshach, Tubal, Gomer, Tagarma, all speaking about Turkey, we're looking at Libya, we're looking at Syria, all nations, and Persia, which of course is... Uh, uh, now Iraq and Iran areas, uh, if you want to buy a Persian rug, that's where you go to get one. Uh, so it still makes sense. But anyway, the common denominator now is the Islamic group, the Muslims, that are now the dominant religion all around Israel. So what is taking place? We have all these nations right now. And by the way, are the, the Islamic nations that surround Israel, if I asked you how are they treating Israel today, what would your answer be? Okay, poorly, what else? Hostile, very hostile environment. Okay, I mean, uh, uh, we talked about this the last several weeks when we were looking at uh, the southern tip of Israel actually belongs to Hamas. 
uh, and Hezbollah at the north in Syria. So you've got these major terrorist Islamic groups that hate Israel with a passion, and they lobbed in some six, 700. I've heard us reports as many as 800 rockets were fired into Israel a couple of weeks ago. So it, it's nothing new, and this has always been going on, and it's going to continue to go on, go on. Okay, so just to pull all this together, will Israel ever get peace? Yes or no? I got like four or five yeses. I heard one or two no's. Okay, let's try again. Think about the prophetic timeline. Let's go through it, and it'll take us 30 seconds. What The major events in God's prophetic timeline. What is the next major event on God's prophetic calendar? Rapture. rapture. Okay, you always get that one. After the rapture, what is the next major event that lasts seven years? Seven-year tribulation period found in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, and multiple other passages. Remember, Daniel's calendar is the one that talks about what's going to happen after the church age, what's going to happen to the Jewish people. All right, so the rapture of the church, that's when we go up. Uh, one generation of, of believers in Christ uh, will, bam, out of here. Uh, because we got some new folks in here, First Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, shout with a voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. And we which are alive and remain, should happen in our generation, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds and the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. All right? That hasn't happened yet, and it will happen. It'll be the last major event of the church age. Now you say, and, and I always throw this out because we always have new people, and uh, what happens if a Christian dies today? 2 Corinthians 5, 8, the body or the, the soul spirit is absent from the body and present. present with the Lord. All right, so immediately when you die, if you're a Christian, body or a soul spirit goes to heaven, the body stays down here. So it's like, well, why didn't God take it all at once? Because he didn't, and <laughs> he just doesn't. So we bury the body or the whatever, the ashes, whatever it may be. And uh, 1 Thessalonians 4 tells us that. And then the other companion passage Let's see who can get this for 10 points tonight. What's the companion passage in 1 Corinthians? Chapter, I heard 15, which is correct. And then basically the key verses are 50 to 54, where the Bible says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump. Bam. Uh, twinkling of an eye happens, same thing as First Thessalonians 4. Our bodies are changed at that time, given our glorified bodies, united with our soul spirit, which were raptured to heaven. And bam, how long are we going to live in a glorified body? A uh, thousand years plus? Forever. Okay, so yes, you're right, Carl. We get the, we get the, glor the, the church age saints have the glorified body during the millennial kingdom, Revelation 21 to 7. Then after the, okay, we got to go one more step now. So, you're living today, you go to heaven for how long? Negative. Seven years. All right, seven years, you're up in heaven. I knew you'd get it. Uh, you're up in heaven seven years. Then what happens at the end of those seven years? You come back to the earth to do what? To rule and reign with Christ. All right, where do we get that from? Revelation 19, 11 to 21, 
what happens? Jesus said he mounts up on a white horse with all his saints, also uh, glorified bodies. We all mount up on white horses, which is interesting because we, you know, it's like, oh, there's horses in heaven. Well, apparently so because we're all getting on one to come back. Revelation 19, 11 to 21, we come back with Jesus to do what? To set up his, his kingdom, the millennial kingdom. Uh, when you're reading through the Gospels, it always talks about the kingdom and occasionally in the Pauline epistles and other places. The Jewish people were looking for what on this earth? The Messiah to do what? To set up his kingdom. Has the kingdom started yet? No, the kingdom is that 1,000-year time when uh, uh, Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Kingdom's not here yet. When Jesus rules and reigns on this earth for 1,000 years, that's the kingdom. So we're not in the kingdom. Uh, you'll hear people talk about kingdom now theology. In other words, the kingdom's here on earth. Folks, 96% of all people on this earth reject Christ today. When Jesus Christ rules and reigns on this earth, it's going to be the exact opposite uh, percentage-wise. Uh, Christ made it very clear when he comes to this earth, all people will know him. Not all people will accept him, but all people will know who he is. All right? That was, that was like two semesters of uh, eschatology in um, like five minutes, so... Uh, anyway, if you're a little confused, keep coming back. Eventually, it'll kick in. I've only been studying it more years than I want to admit to. So, all right, let's get back to the story. Russia and China, basically, they seal economic pacts. So the head of, uh, not uh, 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 President Xi of China, but his number one guy meets with the number one, uh, number two guy in Russia and they basically are coming together trying to work out economic pacts. Well, why in the world is China and Russia working out economic pacts? Why are they working out things involving the Ukraine war and all these other things? Well, the prophetic nexus, and I'm not going to really get into the story on this one, but just to bring out the fact, when we're looking at Ezekiel 38, we're looking at Revelation 16, when we're looking at nations that are one day going to rise up and attack Israel, isn't it just amazing that they're in the news all the time? And it's just setting the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. All right, uh, this is, uh, of course, one that's very, very current in uh, our domestic world. And uh, again, if you're here and uh, you've not been in our Prophecy Global Updates before, my point is never to uh, try and take a political position on things. What I'm doing is looking at things that are taking place and how is what, what they're doing, does it have any nexus, if you will, to biblical prophecy. Well, again, when we're looking at, at what's taking place in America, the first problem when we're looking at prophecy with America is that America is not in Bible prophecy. It doesn't exist. Uh, it's like, well, uh, where's the USA in Bible prophecy? And you can, and I know folks have speculated and allegorized and spiritualized the Bible to try and say, well, here's America. No, it's not in Scripture. It's not in Bible prophecy. All right, so when we're looking at this, here's the only thing we know. And uh, let's see, let's see if anybody remembers this one. I haven't done this in a while. If, 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 if America is not destroyed, 
Where would she be in Bible prophecy? One passage points out where America could potentially be. Anybody know it? Attacking what? Attacking Israel, which is exactly correct. Now, for 110 points and one-fifth above that, where is it found in the Bible? Anybody know? All right, let's go to, take your Bibles, let's go there, because this is an important passage. Go to Zechariah, Z-E-C-H-A-R-I-A-H. Not Zach, or not the other one, but the Zechariah. It's in the Minor Prophets, so it's in the last 12 books of the Old Testament. Zechariah is, chapter 14 is just, I mean, it is a powerhouse of prophecy. Now, Zechariah was written in 500 B.C., 500 years before Christ. And it's got just some absolutely wonderful prophetic truths in it. All right, Zechariah, did you find it? Somebody saying no? Keep looking. It's before Matthew, (laughs) several books. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. So it's the one book before Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament. Zechariah, chapter. What chapter? All right, I want you to say it 62 times as fast as you can. You'll remember Zechariah 14. No, just kidding. Zechariah 14. All right. I'm gonna, we're just going to look at the first couple of verses here. Here we go. Zechariah chapter 14. Again, the last book before Malachi, and then Matthew, and Zechariah sits right in there. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming. The day of the Lord. What are we talking about? Who knows, who can give me a definition or at least a concept? When is the day of the Lord going to take place? And how much time does it encompass? Okay, the the simplest answer is the seven-year tribulation period. Now, based on context, it actually can refer to three three different things, but this one's actually referring to the full seven years. Again, Zechariah 14, verse 1. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst. All right, so this is not a one-day situation. This is a period of time, which is speaking of the seven-year tribulation. So, Zechariah again, Behold, the day of the Lord, that seven-year tribulation is coming, and your spoil, who's he talking about? The Jewish people will be divided in your midst. Now, here we go, and here's what uh, Carl was referring to in verse 2. For I will gather all the what? The nations to battle against whom? Jerusalem. Who lives in Jerusalem? The Jewish people. All right? So Zechariah is prophesying 500 years before Christ even came. Now he's prophesying about something that 2,000 years after Christ still has not happened. What does he say? I'm going to gather all the nations. So here's, here's where's the United States of America in Bible prophecy. If USA still exists, verse 2 of Zechariah chapter 14. So are you saying, well, that's a proof text America is here? No, I'm not saying any such thing. There is no guarantee America will exist in the tribulation or get through the tribulation. Now, you're like, well, that's kind of scary. Now, my point is not to scare anyone tonight, 
My point is, what's the next major event again on God's prophetic calendar? Is it the tribulation? No, it's the rapture of the church. So when we're out of here, I don't really, I mean, I, I'll feel it'll be horrible for those left behind, but uh, we're up in heaven. If for some chance China blows America off the face of the earth, which would be a horrible thing to happen for those left behind, could that happen? It could. We don't know. It doesn't tell us. So the only thing we know is if America survives the tribulation, if China or, or Iraq or Iran or whoever, Russia uh, uh, doesn't destroy America, and, and in the way we're going, if we don't beef things up and get our act together, it's a very strong possibility. I won't say probability, but possibility. You know, it's, it, it's horrible, especially, I mean, this Sunday, what are we, ce what are we uh, celebrating? Is kind of a poor word to use. What are we doing this Sunday? What's the holiday? Memorial Day. I mean, there's folks in this room that have been in the military that have uh, uh, gone out there along with many, many folks in the, in the military that have sacrificed their lives and given and uh, uh, given everything they've got. Families that have sacrificed tremendously for America. But uh, unfortunately, I can't guarantee it will be here. We trust it will be, but we don't know. All right, so what else is going to happen uh, he says, I'm going to gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. In other words, all the nations at the end point of the tribulation period, known as the Battle of Armageddon. The only place the word Armageddon is found is Revelation 16, 16, but this is referring to that battle. And he says, I'll gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city, Jerusalem, shall be taken. The houses rifled. The woman ravished. Half of the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. All right, so when we're talking about Armageddon, is it a single battle or a, let's call it more of a military campaign? It's more of a military campaign. Now, the final battle of Armageddon is when Jesus returns with his saints, and bam, it's done, Revelation 19. But this is going to go on, and it's, it's I mean, it's a horrible thing. Uh, Jerusalem's going to be overrun, basically, by the Antichrist regime. Uh, the women, I mean, ravished, that's, you, you know, I'm not going to go into the detail of that, but just think of the worst thing that uh, men can do to women, and that's what's going to happen. The uh, city's going to be divided up. Then verse 3, then, okay, so the, the, the horrible thing has been taking place, now, here we go. Here comes the good part. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount, Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half the mountain shall move toward the north, half of it towards the south. All right, now we're taking, or at least I'm taking, I hope some of you come along, May of 2024 is uh, the next trip I've got lined up to go to Israel. And you can stand exactly where this is going to take place. I've done it multiple times. It's just amazing. Uh, when you're standing on the Temple Mount, you're looking across the street of the Kidron Valley at uh, the Mount of Olives, and God's telling us that one day when Jesus returns, the Mount of Olives is going to do what? going to split in two. Um, by the way, uh, sometime this summer on a Sunday night, I'm going to show, it's an hour-long video of all the major sites in Israel. If you've never been there, even if you have, I love it. I just watched it again. Uh, I get on my little elliptical machine and watch the video again. It's just phenomenally good. Uh, so we'll do that one Sunday night for an hour. Uh, if you can make it, we'll show it. Bottom line is, though, 
One other quick thing, and boy, we're really getting off track here, but where in the New Testament are we told the exact same thing as Zechariah chapter 14, verse 4? Ah, you're breaking my heart. Hey, who said Acts? All right, Hazel. You got it. All right, well, they're very good. Very good. Well, that's that's what I encourage folks to do. I have a I, now. How many of you got a photographic memory? I, I see. I see one one person. I have a photographic memory too. The problem is it never develops. <laughs> those of you that if those of you that don't understand, uh, back in the day we used to use film and cameras, and you know. <laughs> And in modern day, I mean, uh, if you're probably if you're younger than 40 or 30, it's like, what's film? Yeah, okay. Anyway, go to Acts. Let's just do this real quick. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You can all find Acts. Acts chapter 1. I don't hear any pages, so I'm assuming you're there. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus is getting ready to ascend to heaven. What does he say? But you, here's, here's uh, if you will, part of the Great Commission concept, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in, right where they were, Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, and who's, he, who's watching? The disciples. He, Jesus, was taken up in a cloud, received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, i.e. angels, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? Here we go. This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from where? The mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. Well, folks, uh, if, if you're standing where I'm standing right now and you go out to the end of the soccer field, that's about a, the distance of this. It's very close. Sabbath day's journey. What, what's the point, though? Zechariah stated 500 years earlier that where would Jesus come back? Mount of Olives. The apostle or uh, uh, Luke who wrote the book of Acts in about rough figures, about 100 A.D., actually less, about 80 A.D. or so, when he wrote this, what does he say? Jesus is coming back where? To the Mount of Olives. He said the same place he saw him go up is the same place he's coming back. Uh, scripture enforces Scripture. All right, let's just real quick about this debt ceiling issue because I know it's, uh, it's very concerning to many folks. Okay, now, something happened back there? All right, well, we got three guys going. We'll find out. All calm. All right, President Joe Biden, and again, I'm not trying to make a political statement here. We're simply looking at this issue because I asked this question, and I don't know if it's on a Wednesday night, but I asked how many people are concerned about the economy right now, how many are concerned about the American dollar, and every hand in the auditorium went up. So there's a lot of concern uh, if indeed... Everything's fine, by the way, so all the guys are back. So President Joe Biden, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, could not reach an agreement Monday on how to raise the United States government $31.4 trillion debt ceiling. 
Ouch. <laughs> $31.4 trillion in debt. Now, folks, and, and we talk about that, is this, again, I'm, I'm not trying to make a political statement, but here's what we can learn from this. Again, if you take your checkbook and write a $31.4 trillion debt, where are you going to be next week? Yeah, you'll be in jail. Rightly so. You know, the, it's just horrific how it, it, it's biblical principles do not get into government finances. $31.4 trillion debt ceiling with just 10 days before a possible default that could sink the United States economy, but vowed to keep talking. Well, let's do a little bit more than talk, gentlemen. How about let's come up with a, with a, a, a reasonable decision? By the way, uh, and don't raise your hand, but how many people in this room are on Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, uh, government assistance of any kind? How many schools are funded by uh, government money? How many hospitals? How, folks, that, that's why we're $31.4 trillion in debt, by the way, because the government, ah, why do you do this to me? Why was, why was government formed? Who formed government? Who formed human government? God did. Anybody know the passage? Huh? Genesis chapter 9. The flood takes place. The flood is over. God tells the human beings on this earth to institute human government by making this statement. If anyone takes someone else's life, you are to take that person's life. Now, again, I'm not, if you're against capital punishment, don't get mad at me. I'm just telling you what Genesis started, human government to protect God's people. That's why it was formed, Genesis chapter 9. God instituted three different, I'm never going to get to action. God instituted three different things in Scripture, three main organizations, number or three main, what's the right word? I don't even know what the right word is. Three main institutions. There we go. Institution number one. The first institution God put into place is what? The family. All right, Genesis 1 and 2. Adam and Eve come together. Uh, and basically, uh, he said, man will leave father and mother, join to one flesh, and Bottom line, that was the beginning of the institution of marriage, Genesis 1 and 2. The second institution was, and we just said it, was what? Human government, Genesis chapter 9. After the horrible violence and God destroyed everybody on the earth except eight people, uh, he's like, okay, you guys need to start keeping an eye on things and doing right. By the way, what happened to human government? It does everything. I mean, okay, we still have... The one thing that government was designed to do, and those that don't know who me at all outside of being the pastor here, I was in government work for 32 years. I was a sheriff in Milwaukee County for two years, and I'm very familiar with what human government does today. And I'm also very aware that the one thing that they are supposed to do, according to Bible, is the one thing that when all this radical stuff happened a few years ago, they wanted to defund who? The police, the one thing that God sanctioned. <laughs> Isn't that something? It's interesting. All the other programs, social programs, woke programs, all those different things, yeah, let's keep those going, but cops, who needs them? All they do is protect people and keep them from killing people. Well, you wouldn't know that by the news, but anyway, don't get me off on rabbit trails. All right, so we got, we've got the family, we've got human government. What is the third institution that God formed? 
Third institution that God formed. Let me give you a clue. It's in the book of Acts. The church. All right. So what do we have here? We've got a horrible situation where our spending is out of control, inflation's out of control, and you say, well, you're making a political statement. No, I'm really not. What am I making? Let's go right back here. Revelation chapter 13. All right, let's go there real quick, and then I'm going to do one more thing, and then we'll jump into Acts. Go to Revelation 13, and again, I keep pounding, pounding, pounding this one because this is what is coming. You can't get away from it. It's not going to happen. The good news is it's not going to happen before the rapture of the church. Revelation 13 takes place in the midpoint of the seven-year tribulation period. All right, it talks about the last 42 months. Let's go down to uh, verse 11. And I'm going to give you two quick things and then we'll quit. All right, Revelation 13. Remember now, this is the second half of the seven-year tribulation period where we've talked about the first beast. Who is the main beast, this, this, or the, the metaphorical term? When God talks about the beast, who's he talking about? Nope, nope, nope. Antichrist, there we go. Start. It's the Antichrist. Uh, when he's talking about the dragon when he's talking about the serpent of old the devil and satan those are synonymous terms we're talking about the beast in revelation 13 and other places it's never satan it's always speaking about the antichrist but now in verse 11 we're going to talk about take a look it says then i saw what's the next word another beast all right first beast is antichrist second beast is and i'll give you the punchline: the false prophet third person of the satanic trinity then i saw another beast coming up out of the earth and he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon who's the dragon satan okay and we there's passages that talk about the four synonymous terms the dragon the serpent of old the devil and satan all right it's also in revelation so he had two horns like a lamb wait a minute okay so a lamb is that a cuddly thing or a mean-spirited thing He's cuddly, okay, so he's charismatic personality, if you will, uh, uh, but uh, he's got these two sharp little horns on him, too. So he's, he's got this uh, personality that's going to draw people in, but yet, man, don't get in his way, because then what's going to happen? He's going to speak like Satan or the dragon. And he, that uh, second beast, he exercises, and here it is again, all the authority of the first beast, who is whom? Antichrist. Remember, beast is Antichrist. A dragon is Satan in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast. All right, we're going to stop there for one second because the next story that I want to get to real quick, oh, I can't stop because I didn't finish this. All right, skip, okay, well, I'll read it out and then we'll finish it. Verse 13, he's speaking of the uh, false prophet who is a human, satanically charged. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast or the Antichrist, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast. Who's the beast? Antichrist, who was wounded by the sword and lived. He was granted power to give breath to the image. Folks, the image, the next story we're going to talk about happens to be artificial intelligence. Keep that in the back of your mind. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast that the image of the beast 
It's an image. It's not real. It's not human. What is it doing? The image of the beast should do what? Both speak and cause as many as, as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. Well, how in the world do you get something like that to take place? Well, you know, I, I had my ideas, and I, I mean, I, if you know about holograms and things and some of the th things that we see on the movies and TV, and it's like, yeah, you know, but the, there's really nothing out there that even comes close to matching this until now. The image of the, okay, it is, and, uh, should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. Somehow this image has knowledge, is able to process things, and is able to make sure that people that don't fall in love, if you will, with Antichrist and worship him, they're going to be killed. I mean, point blank. So here's the next part, and this is what plays into the debt ceiling issue. He causes all both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on the right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except the one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is 666. All right, we call this prophecy focus. What's the next word? Global update. The one world economy, one world religion, and one world uh, government, all spoken about in Revelation 13. It's got to happen. So when we're looking at this and it's like, okay, it's disturbing. We hate what we're seeing. We know it's way out of a whack as to what finances should be, but what's it doing? It's setting the stage for Revelation 13 to come to pass. Now, you're like, well, when's the rapture going to take place? And the answer is, we don't know. Could it happen today? Absolutely. There's no signs that have to be fulfilled. Folks, what we're seeing is unprecedented in the world and in America. Nothing like what's taking place has ever happened before. We're looking at America. It's going to end up, if, if something doesn't radically change, like radically quick, it's going to be like one of the ancient civilizations that's going to disappear or that's basically going to go under unless maybe some miracle worker all of a sudden shows up like the Antichrist and restores a one-world currency, Revelation 13, a one-world government, Revelation 13, a one-world religion, Revelation 13, and brings everything back together, and all of a sudden, the Savior, the Antichrist, is on the scene. Do you see how all this can fit together? Now, is this a scenario that's happening as we speak that's going to bring that in? Here is my educated answer. I don't no, I don't know, and nobody knows. We don't know if this is the what's taking place now is the actual impetus for what's going to take place. If it is, me and you better pack our bags because we're leaving pretty quick. I mean, bam, the rapture's going to happen. We're out of here. I'm hoping it's now. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. We don't know. All right, very quick, and then last thing. All right, Bill Gates says top. Now, here's another term. And we haven't used this one yet. AI, we've been using artificial intelligence. We started this a few weeks ago, getting into this issue. Bill Gates' top AI agent, well, who's, what, what's the name of the agent? It's an artificial intelligence agent. It is not a human being. This is a major piece of the artificial intelligence world that 
I'm speculating is part of the Revelation 13 scenario about how this image is going to be able to process information. It just, it's, it's fitting. I can't, I won't swear in the Bible that that's what it is, but boy, if it smells like a duck, walks like a duck, looks like a duck, it's probably a, it's probably a duck, right? Uh, so it's just interesting what's taking place. Microsoft founder Bill Gates reacts during a visit with Britain's Prime Minister Rishi Sunak and sorry for our butchering the name of the Imperial College University in London uh, February 15th, 2023. Now I, I'm going to, this will be a multi-Wednesday night thing going through this. Um, I, I'll, let's see, Tabitha isn't in here right now. I'm going to put this particular article. It's calling Exploring Intelligent Agents. Remember now, agents is not talking about a human being. It's talking about artificial intelligence machines, if you will. Exploring Intelligent Agents in Artificial Intelligence. It's by John Terra. Again, this isn't a Christian document, but it's, it's absolutely astounding what's in here. Uh, so what is an agent in AI? The functions of, uh, uh, these are the contents. The functions of an artificial intelligence angel, agent the number and types of agents in artificial intelligence, the structure of agents in artificial intelligence, what are agents in artificial intelligence uh, composed of. So this is a, it's a nice, interesting, how do you get everything that a human being can do into a machine? Uh, and I'm not, and folks, I'm not trying to be weird about things or speculative or whatever. I'm not making this stuff up. I mean, it, it almost seems, well, you're, this is science fiction. It's not science fiction anymore. This isn't cartoons anymore. This is real stuff that's actually happening. And all I can you're like, Pastor, have you gone off the deep end? It, it's just, in the last month, I have seen more things come out. Valerie called my wife. She called me when I was uh, coming in tonight. She said, you'll never guess what popped up on my computer. I said, you're probably right, so tell me. <laughs> She's opening her computer, and I, maybe the other, I, I am going to take a survey if anybody else had this happen. Now, we use Windows uh, 10 on her machine, and she opens it up, and it pops up and says, do you want your computer to incorporate AI now? I'm like, huh? And she said it disappeared. Uh, she, you know, she probably hit something. Anybody else get that in here? All right. It, I mean, it just happened tonight. I've never seen that on mine. It's something like that pop up, but I was like, whoa, how interesting. All right, just a couple, two slides, and then we're done with this. Again, why are we going into this? It's like, what does this have to do with the Bible? Well, maybe a whole lot when we when we start looking at the prophetic scenario. Intelligent agents in AI are autonomous entities that act upon an environment using sensors and actuators to achieve their goals. Now, folks, if you're into, and I, I'm, when I was preaching in Minnesota, I was staying with a guy that actually is working on AI things, and it's like, again, most of us is like, are you kidding? This is just so weird. But it's not weird anymore. It's real. In addition, intelligent agents may learn from the environment to achieve those goals. Driverless cars and the Siri virtual assistant are examples of intelligent agents in AI. 
All right. Now, I don't know if anybody, anybody in here, uh, I don't even know that they're out yet, but uh, we've seen them on uh, advertised cars that are actually, you know, it's hands-free driving. It exists. How many of you ever seen or used Siri? Nobody? Okay. Everybody's like, nah, kind of. <laughs> but it's there. I use it. I mean, it's there. These are examples of things that are really happening. So, again, this isn't some bizarre, silly thing that Pastor said, well, this ought to get an audience and uh, folks on the Internet. I'm not writing a book on it. Well, I might. But anyway, uh, <laughs> the issue being, it's real stuff. There, these are the main four rules all AI agents must adhere to. Number one. An AI agent, again, artificial intelligence agent, must be able to perceive the environment. We're not talking a human being here. We're talking machines that are able to figure out the environment. Number two, the environmental observations must be used to make decisions, decision-making capability. The decision should result in action. Revelation 13, as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. Is that an action? Again, I'm not saying that's what this is, but boy, it's just amazing that here it is. Number four, the action taken by the AI agent must be rational. Well, good luck with that one. Uh, I forget which company it was with, but uh, if you, again, if you don't watch the news, you don't see this stuff, but one of the head age, or one individuals of one giant AI corporation testified before Congress uh, within the last week about this stuff can really be dangerous if it's used improperly. That was testified in Congress, folks. It's the real deal. It's here. All right, last thing. And uh, so if you look off to the right, this is a chart put out by uh, uh, the group called Simply Learn, and that's where this article came from. So you have the environment. The environment feeds sensors, what the world is like now, what it will be like if I do action A, how happy I will be in such a state, what action I should do now. Those are the actuators that make whatever decision that the AI agent is going to stick out there. So again, why are we going through this stuff? It's to put in our minds that, hey, things are happening, things are changing at a very, very, very rapid pace right now, all setting the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. So uh, again, and, uh, and uh, we're going to go to, if you got your Bible and want to start turning to Revelation, or, uh, Acts chapter 18, the reason we're doing these things is to do two things. Number one, it's to wake up the church-age saints. We are, I strongly believe, in the last days of the church age. Again, I can't prove it, but based on all the things that are happening that are starting to set the stage for one world government, one world religion, one world economy, all these things are happening at rapid pace like never before. The absolute debauchery that's taking place on morality issues is off the charts. I sat with a couple, Valerie and I sat with a, a couple that it's visited here a couple of times last night at a restaurant, which we often do. And uh, they said, you know, and I'm not going to tell you where they came from or who they are, but they said, you know, one of the reasons we're coming to the Union Grove Baptist Church now, they actually had a couple of things, but one was we're tired of hearing about Calvinism and that God determines who is and who isn't going to go to heaven. Reformed Calvinism is shutting down churches right and left. 
If you don't evangelize, what happens to the church? Eventually shuts down or just grows cold and becomes nothing more than a social club. Uh, Luke 19.10, Jesus said he's come to seek and to save those who are lost. First Timothy 1.15, uh, this is a faithful and acceptable saying that Christ Jesus came to the world to save. John 3.16, for God so loved the no, he didn't say, I just love the elect. He said, I so love the world that I gave my only begotten Son that whosoever, anyone who believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So uh, the Reformed uh, uh, Covenant theologians, the other issue was our pastor won't talk about prophecy. It's too controversial. We refuse to talk about it. Folks, that's all across the country. It's too hard to understand. What do you mean it's too hard to understand? It's not hard to understand if you study it a little bit, you know. And, and it's just don't talk about how they knew a, what percentage of the Bible is prophecy. Oh, come on, folks! You come to UG. Thank you. One third of the Bible is prophecy. One third of the Bible is prophecy. You throw out one third of the Bible, you're only using two thirds of what God gave you. And God said, all Scripture, all Scripture, 2 Timothy 3.16, is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for instruction in righteousness, that, uh, uh, that the man or woman of God might be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. All right, enough preaching on that for now. Let's go to Acts. Acts chapter 18. Uh, anybody need a handout? Nathaniel's got them. Now, this handout's going to be good for at least two weeks. So, if you uh, plan on being here for the next week or two, bring it along. I will have some additional copies made if you need them. But it's good for two weeks because there's no way we're getting through Acts 18 in one evening. All right, let's get there. So... After these things, Paul departed from Athens. Where's Athens at? All right, and went to Corinth. All right, so when we're looking at uh, a map here, Paul's second, we're in this Paul's second missionary journey. Again, Paul went to uh, pretty much these places on his first one. He's going back around uh, Jerusalem, by the way, if, if you're is in the far right corner where you see the 22, if you can see that. So they're, they're going out. They go... Uh, uh, basically back through what we now know as Turkey or Asia Minor. They go up into Macedonia, which is where you see Thessalonica and Philippi at the top. And now they're starting to make their trek south. So they, uh, uh, he says he was in Athens, which uh, you can see midpoint in the map there. And now they're going just about 50 miles south to a place called Corinth. Now, how many, anybody in here ever been to Greece? All right, a couple of you. All right, uh, I've had the privilege of being there. It's an absolutely beautiful place. Uh, we were looking up at the Acropolis up on top. Of course, these are uh, just astounding uh, uh, monuments, if you will, that still exist today in some form. They've been uh, reinforced and rebuilt multiple times to try and keep them intact. But, uh, I mean, they're just absolutely gorgeous beautiful architecture that took place back in the day and if you go there today this is pretty much what you're going to see 
up on the, the top of, uh, uh, they have, I mean, just the, the architecture, the beauty of it. If you look down to the left, you can see how high this is. The city's way down uh, below where this particular edifice is. But everything, I mean, it's just gorgeous, well done, very artistic work. Uh, that was taking place in Athens. And, of course, Athens was a major, major city, major uh, metropolis. Uh, here's a nice picture that uh, if you go there at night, you can they actually light up the building, and it, it just is, is a gorgeous reminder of what took place back in the day. However, the one thing to think about when we're thinking about Athens, was this a godly, God-fearing place? Everything that was built there was built on idolatry, false gods, uh, which is they, they just poured absolute uh, monumental amount of money into the city to please whom? Please their gods. Um, we can appreciate the architecture, but not the reason that these things were put into place. All right, one more aerial shot here. You can see the, what's left of uh, those buildings back from ancient times, and then you can see the modern city of Athens uh, off in the distance here. So a view, very beautiful uh, a place is Greece. So he's leaving Athens. Now, think about what we're talking about in the first century. Obviously, all those white buildings didn't exist at that time. We're talking much more humble surroundings. But the things up on this hill uh, definitely did exist at that time. All right, so now we're talking about, we got a little side map just to blow it up a bit. So, uh, again, they, they've been in Thessalonica, they've been in Philippi, they've been in Berea. Uh, they're in the province now of Achaia, and now they're just leaving Athens, again going about 50 miles south to this place called Corinth. So if you go to Corinth today, uh, it's very difficult to see because of the way the, the um, if you're there in person, it's really hard to see things because it's very compartmentalized, and this aerial shot is really nice because you can get a bigger idea of what you're looking at here. So, uh, again, Corinth, the, old, uh, the new city as it exists today, is scattered around, and uh, there in the middle, these, these again, was a pagan temple that was there, and the arch old, some of the old ruins are there and exist. A uh, little bit other picture, not quite as clear, but uh, uh, you can see off to the left some of the uh, columns that were there from the temple that existed in Corinth. Now, when you think about Corinth, what do you think about? Good place, bad place, idolatry, paganism, horrible licentiousness, uh, immorality was off the charts horrible. It was just a, a, a pagan, pagan place. Uh, uh, and Paul comes in there and He's got some real problems. And we, of course, uh, on Sunday mornings, we've been going through 2 Corinthians uh, most Sundays when, I'm not, when we're not in a holiday like we are this week. But uh, the, the Corinthians, I mean, they're just steeped in sinful, horrible, urban behavior. Did you catch that? What kind of behavior? Urban. When, and we go back to a principle in Genesis. When God formed Adam and Eve, and then especially after the flood, he made the statement to both groups of people, Adam and Eve, and then he makes it again after the flood, after he destroys all but eight people. Go out to do what? Be fruitful and multiply. Did he tell them to stay in one place? He scattered around the earth. Remember the Tower of Babel? What happened? 
uh, the people got together. They started. They all spoke one language. They're building this uh, false, idolatrous kind of thing, trying to get up to uh, who God is. And, of course, it was all false stuff that they were doing. What did God do at Babel? He confused their what? He confused their language to make them do what? Scatter. Find people that talk the same language you do and get out of town and start some and go somewhere else. Why do you think God did that? Why didn't God want everybody staying in one place? It's like, well, the food supply. It had nothing to do with the food supply. Had to do with what? Crime. Yeah, that's part of it. Crime, idolatry. What happens in every major city in our country? Are they all God-fearing places? Are they all like Union Grove where God lives? What's the difference between Union Grove and Chicago? Or Milwaukee? Or Racine? Or Kenosha? Population size. What's, what's the, when you drive around here, what do you see a lot of? Farms, agriculture, cows, horses, geese, possums, <laughs> if you come out at night. Well, no, here's my point. The point is God did not want babbles showing up all over the world. He wanted people to go to scatter, and quite frankly, the urban concept, it's always a problem. And when we go against a principle, now you're like, well, where is everybody supposed to go? Folks, do you know how much, what percentage of land is actually used in the world, in, in America? It's a small, small percentage. Go out there and take a drive out to the West Coast. Take, take an airplane ride. Go from Chicago to uh, California. How much of that land is inhabited? All right, so here's the point. You put a million people together, you're going to have problems. You put 10 million people together, you got real problems. Corinth was a major metropolis. Instead of following God, and, and, and it, there's, I want to be careful, but if you want to live a simple life, if you will, versus the urban chaos, you're going to get two totally different results. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? There's nothing wrong with living a simple life, by the way. Simple meaning you're not involved in urban chaos. Living out, How many folks live, work downtown, but they buy their homes out here? They don't want to live in that mess. You know, and, and it's just, just to be honest. Why? Because crime-ridden cities, and especially when, I won't say this about the government, when they uh, uh, are touting lawlessness today, it's a problem. So, Corinth was one of those places. All right, that was a bit of a rabbit trail. Here's some of the columns that existed from one of the temples. And it, again, these are modern shots of things that you can still see today. All right, and accounting for their relocation to Corinth, Luke explains that the two had recently come from Italy because Emperor Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. All right, so we got this big problem. The Jewish people get scattered. When were the Jewish people scattered? What year? A.D. what? A.D. 70. Who came in and caused the dispersion of the Jewish people from Israel? Titus, who was the general of what group of people? Roman soldiers. The Roman soldiers come in 70 A.D. They destroy the temple.
temple, the second temple. They scatter the Jewish people all over the known world. Many of them end up in a place called Rome. And now Emperor Claudius says, "Uh uh-uh, get these Jewish people off out of Rome. So they migrated, many of them uh, migrated south, and here they are now in Corinth. So that decree is mentioned by Roman Roman historian Suetonius, who wrote, as the Jews were indulging in constant riots at the instigation of Crestus, Claudius banished them from Rome. What does Crestus look like to you? Anybody in the Bible? Christ. It is, and again, based on the writing, it's not documented 100%, but who are these people that were rioting? Well, these are the individuals, the Jewish people, many of whom turned to Christ, that were forced out when when the second temple was destroyed. The bottom line is, this Suetonius basically said, why did it, why were they kicked out? Well, the the end result was they were saying the Jews were rioting on behalf of Crestus. Now, if it's true, this is actually Christ they were rioting on as as uh, uh, proselytes, if you will, to Christianity. Don't know because the the historian doesn't tell us. But the bottom line is the Jews get a bad rap and they're kicked out of Rome. That's, that's what happened. And that's how they ended up down in Corinth, or at least some of them did. All right, Acts 18.2. So we're talking about Paul. He found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy, Rome, with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. And he came to them. All right, now this I love this piece here because... We're looking at the Apostle Paul, one of the greatest missionaries of all time, one of the greatest church planters, preachers of all time, one of the greatest missionaries of all time. So because he was of the same what? Trade. He stayed with them and worked, for by occupation they were tent makers. Have you ever heard of a a pastor or Christian worker, and they'll say, my tent making job is whatever? I got a new friend up here, a little moth. Anyway, so when I was, I've been, and I like to say I've been bivocational almost my entire life. My tent-making job was what? It was with the sheriff's office, right, for 32 years. Now, I was preaching before I was with the sheriff's office. I'm preaching after the sheriff's office, and I preached all during the sheriff's office. Bivocational. Why? So I, for the most part, we have uh, our ministry called Prophecy Focused Ministries. I've never taken one penny of salary from it. Why? Because I don't have to. Because I worked a tent-making job. Uh, and that kind of thing. So it, it's like Paul did not want the people to be chargeable for the ministry. And there's a lot of guys who do the same thing. There are tons and tons of uh, people in ministry that are what we'll call uh, bivocational. They have a tent-making thing. Uh, a lot of small church planters uh, that aren't getting support, like many of our missionaries get support, they go overseas. A lot of church planters that are in the States, what do they do? They work a full-time, part-time job, They plus doing their uh, ministry, and that's exactly what Paul did. So I, I really do appreciate that concept. By the way, every single person in this room, or at least somebody you're related to, you're a tent maker. 
You've got a tent-making job. If you're a Christian, do you have to be in full-time ministry to be in ministry? No, and I make this statement constantly. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you have a quote-unquote secular job, does that mean you're, you're not in the ministry? In my opinion, the answer is you are in the ministry. No matter where you are, no matter where God places you, no matter what job you have to earn money, you should be a, a, an example of Christ wherever you are. Would we agree? You may not be able to preach a, a message in, in your shop, or at your place of employment, but can you still be a Bible-believing Christian that when you have opportunity, you can share things about Christ? Of course you can. Uh, we like to call that in America the first, the first Amendment. That's your right to be able to share Christ. Now, again, you don't do it when you're on the clock unless the boss says you can do it. Um, but when you have a break, before and after whatever, you go for it. All right. Bottom line is, Paul's occupation was a tent maker. So we had, again, these people were kicked out of Rome, uh, uh, Aquila and Priscilla, who end up being uh, close friends of Paul. By the way, the Scriptures never tell us when they came to Christ or if they came to Christ. We assume, uh, based on the context, that they were uh, uh, believers in Christ because Paul was uh, linking up with them. But it really never gives us their uh, testimony as to when they came to Christ. So again, we're way out, of, way away from Jerusalem now. We're up in Corinth, and then, of course, Rome's over there. By the way, people coming out of the Europe, the Jewish people coming out of Europe were called Ashkenazi Jews, and the ones that came out of Spain, the ones that were dispersed into that era, area are called Sephardic. So when you hear the term Ashkenazi Jews, those are Europe, Jews that were scattered to Europe. If you're talking about Jews that were scattered to Spain, those are the Sephardic Jews. That's the names that they picked up or the designations. That was for free. 18.4. So what does Paul do? He reasoned in the synagogue every what? Sabbath. Now, I'm going to point out something here because this is interesting. When you think of the term uh, a synagogue and Sabbath, what group of people do you think of? Jewish people. Well, let's see what the verse says. He reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and what? Wait a minute. Now, who were Greeks Jewish people? All right, so he's in a synagogue. It's on the Sabbath, and we got Greek people in the, in the synagogue. Well, isn't that weird? Well, actually not. And I'm gonna, we're going to probably spend the, the last few minutes on this concept. Uh, let's go, to, go back to Acts chapter 2. Remember now, we're in Acts chapter 18. We're going to set the stage now as to why there were Greeks or Gentiles in what? The synagogue. Acts 2 verse 5, and you'll remember this. Acts 2 is a great great uh, Pentecostal experience, or uh, not experience, time, when the Holy Spirit comes down upon who? Well, let's take a book. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. What's the feast going on right now? Passover, Passover right? So three pilgrim feasts, all the Jewish males are supposed to be in Jerusalem at the three pilgrim feasts. Old Testament law. Passover, Pentecost and the Feast of Tabernacles. All Jewish men were supposed to be in Jerusalem on those three feasts. So just like uh, God, God mandated, we have a ton of Jewish males in Jerusalem during Passover. 
so there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own what? Language. So we're having this massive bunch of people all speaking different languages, but all coming to Jerusalem based on the mandate of God that all Jews should be in Jerusalem. Then they were all amazed and marveled, marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya, joining Crete, visitors from Rome, both Jews and what? Proselytes. What was a proselyte? And folks, we can't miss this because it is a huge, huge piece of what's taking place in Acts. Who are proselytes? They are Gentiles that converted to Judaism. Why were there Greek-speaking or Greek uh, uh, non-Jewish people in the synagogue? Because these individuals put their faith in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These were not Christians yet, though many of them will become Christians. What we have is individuals that are basically practicing Judaism. Do you remember the Ethiopian eunuch? The guy comes from Ethiopia. He heads to Jerusalem at one of the feasts. He was a Gentile proselyte. When Philip came down and talked to the Gentile proselyte leaving Jerusalem after the feast, Philip's reading what passage? Isaiah 53. Philip says, do you understand what you're reading, Mr. Ethiopian? And he says, how can I unless somebody explains it to him? Philip preaches Christ to the proselyte. He was a Gentile. He was following, uh, uh, if you will, Judaism, the Old Testament law, the best he could. And now Philip comes and preaches who to him? Jesus. What happens to the eunuch? What happens to him? He comes to Christ. And the eunuch says, hey, I want to get baptized. And he says, well, do you believe in all your heart that uh, uh, in Jesus? He says, I believe with all my heart that Jesus Christ, uh, uh, that he is the Christ. He said, come on down, let's baptize you. Believer's baptism. All right. Uh, proselytes. Acts chapter 6. So then the twelve, some of the multitude of the disciples, and said, it is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. We had some widows. They weren't getting uh, uh, served. And uh, the disciples are like, man, you know, we don't have time to wait on tables and get, get uh, people food and all that kind of thing. So now they're praying for some workers. Uh, verse 5 of Acts 6, and, they, and the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and the Holy Spirit, Philip, Prochorus, uh, Nicanor, Tim, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a what? A proselyte from Antioch. What is he? He's a Jewish guy that believed in the, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Acts 13. Now when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who speaking to them persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. What's he saying? He was talking to Jewish people. He was talking to Gentiles that had basically converted to Judaism. Paul preaches Christ to them, and then what do they become? Christians. All right, I'm going to close with this because we're about out of time. Here's the key verse, and then we'll stop. When Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, okay, so they were up north. They finally come down to see Paul. Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the what? 
All right, so we have Jews coming to Christ. We have Gentiles coming to Christ. All right, so let's go through one more. I don't have a slide for this, but this is pulls all this together. You may want to, Hazel, you take notes on this so you can remind everybody when I ask the question again, all right? Here we go. Genesis chapter 1 through Genesis chapter 11, what people group existed? Who said it? You get 22 points. Genesis 1 through Genesis chapter 11 is the first. Let's see if you get this one. How many years is it from Genesis 1 through the end of Genesis 11? How many years? Approximately. I heard a two. Who said 2,000? Cindy! All right. The first 2,000 years of history are Genesis 1 through Genesis 11. Genesis, and what people group existed? Gentiles. No Jewish people yet. First 2,000 years, only Gentiles. Abraham comes on the scene in Genesis chapter, I already told you, 1 through 11. What's after 11? 12. Genesis 12. Through the end of Malachi is the second 2,000 years of history. Abraham has a son named Isaac, who has a son named Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, the children of Israel, the Hebrew children, the Jewish people. Genesis 12, through the end of Malachi, approximately 2,000 years. What two people groups existed? The Gentiles and the Jews. Let's see, Acts 18.5. All right, now we have the missionary, the, the apostles, the disciples, Jesus himself comes on and all of a sudden the gospel of the grace of God is starting to be preached. All of a sudden we have a new people group that comes on made up of Jews and Gentiles and that third people group is called Christians. Isn't it amazing? And all I'm going to say is it's amazing. I I mean, I'm not really making a statement outside of amazing. First 2,000 years of of history, Gentiles only. Second 2,000 years of history, Gentiles and Jews. Third 2,000, what year is it? What? 2023, yeah. The next 2,000 years of history, Gentiles, Jews, and Christians. Huh. The Jewish calendar, I forget what year we're in, 5,000, anybody know off the top of your head? Oh. What is it? All right, let's, let me, I'll cheat. What year is it in the Jewish calendar? I need a little AI help here. Ah. And of course, it gives me everything but what I asked for. What year are we in the Jewish calendar? There it is, 5,783 in the Jewish calendar. All right, now that's, of course, their dating is different than our dating. So, but just, and I'm, again, please don't take this as doctrine. I'm not making a doctrinal statement here, but it's just very, very interesting. 2,000 years Gentiles, 2,000 years Gentiles and Jews, 5,783. So we have 217 years left until we get to the Jewish calendar, 6,000. Don't know. 
just interesting. And that's all I'm saying. I am not a date setter. I hate date setting. It never works. But it's just interesting that if God's pattern stays the same, and again, their calendar's not, the, whoops, it's down here. Their calendar's not the same as ours, so who knows when 6,000 shows up, but just think on that. It's something, uh, instead of thinking or counting sheep tonight when you go to bed, just count, count the years 5,783 and we're <laughs> out of here. All right, uh, we're going to close with that. But it, it, a lot of stuff tonight, right? I mean, it's, it's just interesting. We're looking at the progression of how God uh, got the church going, the things that were taking place, and uh, it, it's just marvelous. By the way, are there still Jews and Gentiles that need Jesus Christ today? Yeah, like about 96% of the country, based on, again, research, 4% of us believe in, in the gospel. That's pitiful. It's horrible. And uh, you're like, is there any hope for America with all the things going on? Yeah, there is hope for America. Always hope. And the hope is found in? In Christ. We're all sinners. If we got what we deserved, every single one of us would spend eternity in an awful place called the Lake of Fire, Revelation 21.8. But Jesus Christ, God's Son, came down from heaven, died on the cross for your sins, was buried, and three days later rose from the dead. And the Bible promises you this. Every single person that will place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ alone, can have a place in heaven. For by grace, God's free and merited gift are you saved. Saved from sin, saved from the penalty of sin. For by grace are you saved through faith. And it's not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works none of our works lest any person should boast as we close and those watching on the internet if you've never placed your faith and trust in jesus christ we encourage you to do that right now you say it's that it's that simple uh, uh, no it was that painful it was that sacrificial jesus paid it all comes down from heaven dies on a cross horribly treated gives his life is buried and three days later rose from the dead. No, it's not simple. Jesus paid the ultimate price. He gave everything. And as we approach Memorial Day and we think about the sacrifice of soldiers and others that have given their lives that we might have freedom, Jesus paid the ultimate sacrifice when he sacrificed himself through his death, burial, and resurrection. If you never received that free gift, I encourage you to receive it tonight. You can contact us here at Union Grove Baptist Church, and we would love to help you get started with your walk with Christ. Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for what he means to us. Thank you for this word of God so much compacted into one volume made up of those 66 precious inspired books. So, Father, help us to continue, even if some of the things might uh, have been hard to understand tonight or was just maybe a little more than uh, some could process. Lord, just help us to do what you encouraged us to do in 2 Timothy 2.15, to study, to show ourselves approved unto God, workmen, workwomen, that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Thanks so much for.